Some topics in this podcast series deal with sensitive subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. The National Principles for Child Safe Organisations reflects 10 child safe standards recommended by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. These principles aim to provide Australia with a nationally consistent approach to creating organisational cultures that foster child safety and well-being. They have a broader scope that goes beyond child sexual abuse to cover other forms of potential harm to children and young people. This podcast series, brought to you by ComplySpace and Brave Hearts, unpacks each of the 10 principles, their implications and ways to apply them. In this episode, we explore Principle 6, processes to respond to complaints and concerns are child-focused. Hi everyone, I'm Deborah Dafina, Principal Consultant in Child Protection at ComplySpace. And I'm Matt Sinclair, the National Child Protection Training Manager at Bravehearts. Um, you're listening to our series of podcasts about the National Principles for Child Safe Organisations. Today we're going to be talking about Principle 6, which is about effective and child-focused complaints handling. Our guest is Dr Deirdre Thompson. She is the Director of Therapeutic and Support Services at Bravehearts. Welcome, Deirdre. Thank you. So, Deirdre, the, the services of, of Bravehearts are a really important one and and it is something that the Royal Commission in itself was something that Bravehearts lobbied for for quite a long time and, mm-hmm. and a niche focus of our, certainly our therapeutic services and our advocacy and support is around working with families who have been affected by child sexual assault. So we thought of no one less than yourself to mm-hmm. talk to us about how we could you know, ensure that the processes of a school and how they could apply these new principles um, in a way in which it was child-centred is something that really is up your alley and something you speak to all the time. And I think one of the great things about Bravehearts is the different services that we offer mm-hmm. and something that we've been talking about recently and a service that we've launched from a model that's had great success and really positive outcomes in the US is the concept of the Child Advocacy Centre. Mm-hmm. So we're really, really keen and I think um, people listening in really would like to understand what is a child advocacy centre? Sure. So um, a children's advocacy centre is a model based in the US predominantly. Um, I think at this point there's uh, just shy of 900 children's advocacy centres in the US. Um, There's another 30 in Europe, another two in the UK. So it's definitely a model that has uh, grown in interest and scale. Initially, um, the Children's Advocacy Centres were established to create a truly child-centred approach. Um, Prior to them, children uh, were expected to um, go to police stations, make disclosures within a criminal setting, um, be interviewed by police, usually wearing their guns, their their belts, their tasers, their badges. Not exactly a child-friendly environment for anyone to go to, let alone disclosing something as delicate as child sexual assault. Mm. Um, so um, they developed um, this child-centred um, model whereby they created an environment where the services came to the child. So in talking about a truly child-centred approach, this model exudes every element you'd be looking for. Um, so 
each um, centre is developed and created within the community that it supports and serves. So they have some essential features that are um, consistent throughout each model, but certainly how each centre has developed has got a different story or a slightly different focus because a big part of this is engaging within the community. So again, speaking to the Royal Commission's mm. recommendations, you've got to educate the community in order to keep our children safe. So they see that as a fundamental feature of the model. Um, perhaps if I talk about the journey of the child through that model, it'll help you understand. Yeah. Um, so the children, um, if a child discloses, they're brought to the Child Advocacy Centre, um, where they're greeted and taken to a really super child-friendly space. And the children's advocate comes to speak with them in the first instance, explain the process of what's going to happen. And then they're taken for an interview um, within a forensic interview room where a trained forensic interviewer conducts that interview with the child um, in a way that um, meets all requirements for um, legal mm -hmm. expectations. The key part is, is that behind the interview room is an observation room. And within the observation room, that's where police mm. are sitting. That's where um, child safety may be represented. That's where um, prosecutions are sitting. The entire focus of that is that they can observe the interview, hear the interview. They can also guide and put questions to the interviewer, who essentially is a completely independent person whose only job is to interview the child, to give that child their one best um, attempt at giving their story. Because we know that first disclosure and that first interview is the most important interview that child's ever going to give and that's where the richness and the best information will come from. Mm. So we've got really one crack at it. They mm. might do two, but it's predominantly mm. let's do yeah. this once. And that's as well around this child doesn't need to retell their story. They don't need to be re-traumatised. They don't need to overthink it. We'll get mm. the information the first time round. So all those parties get the information they need. Mm. But the key part is irrespective of the information the child discloses, the important part is when that child leaves that interview room, they then go back to the advocate who then um, will assist them to work through, uh, go to therapy. So the therapeutic service is co-located in that building, um, that child safety is co-located in the building, police are co-located in that building. So the services then work actively together to meet the needs mm. of the child with the child only ever knowing they had to do that once and move mm. through their therapeutic healing journey from that point mm. forward in a space you already recognise as being child-friendly and child-safe and there for their best interests. Mm. Um, and they, look, they, they vary in scale and size, but the ultimate and the, the, the point that we've taken for um, Brave Hearts is how do we keep that child at the centre? So there's always tensions across agencies and stakeholders around what they need and what they need to get out of the process. But ultimately, if we keep the child at the centre, we'll all be doing our job, but we won't be re-traumatising the child. And that's the key, is that they tell that story that one time and that they get to move on and have the support that they need to um, heal and mm. to um, move on with the rest of their life. Mm. Yeah. It really sounds like the perfect model, doesn't it? Mm. You do such a great mm. job of, of explaining it so mm. clearly. And and I think if of myself, if I was in a, a leadership position of a school, mm -hmm. um, I think, wow, that sounds amazing. And I think, okay, so do I need a special room for the occasional or perhaps very infrequent time where a child might disclose? So how could, how, what can we draw from that? Uh, model and the specific mm -hmm. locations and purpose facilities mm -hmm. and how can we reflect the, the the positive elements of that and the real value add elements of that process in a school setting mm. well I think um, 
have it in an area that's a child safe area and by that mm. all areas in the school should be child safe of course but let's face it if you're going to the principal's office for example yeah. oftentimes that can be associated with disciplinary matters yeah mm. so finding a spot within the school that's not attached or associated with anything negative something that's um, clearly seen as a safe space I think it's also important that it's it's not an area where everyone has eyes and ears on it so that it's like oh they're going to that room mm. so I think physicality of where an interview if an interview is going to happen should be considered um it will entail um police coming to the school or child safety coming to the school so consideration of that as well so your relationship with your key stakeholders is important yeah um so if i was in a school i'd be wanting to advocate for police to come in an unmarked car perhaps plain clothes rather than in uniform like those sorts mm. of things where a child isn't then further stigmatized or because then the other children witnessing what's going mm. on, they're going to have to explain it afterwards. Um, I think the supports that are available. So if a child's going to be interviewed, they should have, unless their parents are mm. the yeah possible subject to that subject of yeah. the allegation, having that support nearby, mm. close, so they understand. Mm. Um, someone there so for that example I mean having um, someone within the school perhaps the guidance officer available to provide support mm. to um, the parents the family member and the child yeah. and talk them through and give them that level of reassurance that this is a process and um, mm. tell your story and that's the most important mm. thing and these people are here to help you so lots of reassurance because one it's a huge deal to disclose two it's another to then go in and tell in mm. detail and and speak to complete strangers mm. about it so having that support there familiar face mm. I think would be key and yeah. this goes you know for not just child sexual no. assault or those sorts of things but you know reportable conduct so yeah. if, a, if a school's doing a reportable conduct investigation mm -hmm. um that investigation also needs to be child focused absolutely mm. yeah yeah mm. and you said a few things there that I want to go back to and and firstly it was around the importance of having strong stakeholder relationships and and, and you mentioned about advocating for what kind of police would come and, mm -hmm. and what they would be wearing and, and who else would come along. Mm -hmm. How can schools improve improve that? And I guess sometimes it's about knowing who to speak to within police. Yeah. Can you give us some advice around that? We often have um, a police liaison officer in each area who are usually very approachable because their role is to engage with the community and understand how police can better meet that community need. So having a good relationship with that person within your region would be key. Um, then also within the child protection unit, having some relationships there so you can pick up the phone and say, look, this has happened. Can we have someone come out? Because otherwise it'll go to the nearest police station. Mm. It will get dealt with in the usual manner get a number and then, you know, whoever's available will come out. So I think strengthening that relationship with the child protection unit um, is probably an important part. Now, you may not always get what you want because they're obviously um, they'll be on cases, but I think mm -hmm. that relationship, but also that relationship to be able to pick up the phone and go, look, this is something that's come up and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Um, it's, it's really important. Mm. Um, they can help, they can give advice. Similarly with child safety, you know, ringing your local child safety um, unit, having a key contact to talk to them about um, this has been reported or this has been observed and we're not quite sure what's the best process moving forward. And having those advice because we're always continually learning and making sure that your staff and your, you know, your volunteers working with you know what to do and when mm -hmm. to do it's key. But sometimes we just need that extra um, support and guidance because 
people will report to us, but I'm dealing with someone's life here. This is a really important um you know, situation, I don't want to mess it up for them. And mm. so just leaning on those people, because at the end of the day, your job is to protect the child. Mm. And they will help you stay focused on that as well. So it could be something as simple as, like I often refer to as cup of tea meetings, mm-hmm. outside of the context of yeah. a, an emergency situation yeah. where you're establishing those relationships. Um, and I think it's worthwhile highlighting that within every state department of police, there is a child protection specialist yeah. unit. Mm-hmm. And knowing who that is and and asking that can be the difference between the most recent complaint being a stolen bike versus this is their Mm, specialty focus and they can really give you that more expert Mm -hmm. advice. Mm -hmm. No disrespect for general duties police officers working Mm -hmm. with, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, the the smaller end of the scale of of crime. Um, The other thing was around, I guess, um, having that space and, and... not really sure of the question, but around what does that mean for a first responder? Mm-hmm. Do we, if we get a suspicion that a kid's about to disclose, do we quickly, you know, grab them by the arm and usher them to the child safe art room or whatever it is? <laughs> like, what might that look like? And, and where does the, at what point would we then call upon police or child safety? What does that look like? Well, look, I don't think you can control when the disclosure will come. I think mm. that's, that's the beauty of children, if they feel safe they're going to tell you irrespective of what's going on around them. So I think, um, you know, the key principles are to stay calm, engage mm. in active listening, um, listen to the child, don't stop them, because any attempt at stopping them may actually shut them down altogether. Mm. Um, of course you would be vigilant around who's listening, where you are, but really ultimately it's letting that child know mm. I'm here for you and mm. I am listening. And then, um, depending on what they've told you, then ascertain what action do I need to take right here and now. So if it's if it's a historical event, um, you know, you may say, look, let's go to um, you know a more private area and we can have it. We'll we'll talk about this more. Um, if you feel competent and able to, if you're not, then it's around identifying who's best place for you to take the child to go and have that conversation with at that point in time within mm. the school. Um, and hopefully that would be identified within your policies and your procedures mm. as to who um, you as that first responder should then um, inform or um, encourage the child to be talking to. If there's an immediate and an imminent risk, and obviously then it's, um, you know, depending on what your policies and procedures um, require you to do, but you would have to then um, seek um uh, intervention through police or child mm. safety. If it's mm. child sexual assault, then it's a criminal matter, so mm. it's police. If it's other forms of abuse and neglect, then you might choose to go to child safety in the first instance. But again, they will help you make those decisions. Mm. Once you contact them, they'll they'll assist you with that decision making process. Yeah. So on on that mm. note, so say a complaint is raised at a by a child at a school about mm. a sexual assault, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's not clear whether it's a current or a historical yeah. one. Um, what would you consider to be the best practice next step response that the organisation, that the school should take? Well, the first part is they still need to do a a risk assessment on the spot. So understanding Mm. is that child at risk currently? Mm. And I guess the other key question for me is always, when that child leaves the school, are you going to be comfortable for them leaving that school having not done anything? Would you Mm. sleep at night? We'll Mm. often say to people, like, you've got the information. Is it something you need to act on immediately or is it something to seek advice on? Um, I think no matter what, um, listening to the child and then 
committing to I will follow through with this and being really clear on your actions um, it's the follow through that's the important part but the, the risk and the safety element for the child is what will guide do I now go and contact child safety or police mm. do I contact the parents mm. I mean what's the course of action it's it's really around what will keep this child safe is the, is mm. the underpinning guiding principle um, because each situation is going to be pretty different mm. yeah really different mm. and that's, sorry yeah. go ahead I was just going to say that's that that's one of the things that we find that schools um struggle with yeah. and particularly when it's peer-on-peer mm-hmm. issues mm. so can we can you talk through a little bit about what might be a best practice response um in respect of both the child who is the alleged victim and the child who is the alleged perpetrator of a peer-to-peer sexual mm-hmm. assault or behavior and look, the, the first thing I have to say is, again, there's not a one-size-fits-all mm. response because each situation is different. There's so many factors and so many variables that need to be considered. But my first um, piece of advice is to always remember that children are children, irrespective of whether they're the child who's been harmed or the child who's enacted the behaviour, mm. that um, it's important to continue to remember that they are still children and that we have a duty of care to both of them. Um Obviously, a risk assessment as to the level of risk that the young person who was subject to the behaviour, um, what level of risk have they been um, exposed to, any level of harm that needs immediate action. So, you know, in worst case scenario, there may be medical assistance required for that child. Um, But to um, make sure that they're in a safe place and supported by someone is key, but similarly for the other child as well, to make sure that they're also supported because we don't know what led to the mm. behaviour and um, you know this is such a growing area of need and I know that schools really struggle with it and mm. it's it's become um, a fear and some schools just don't want to deal with it. Mm. Um, simple response may be to suspend, expel and in some cases that's absolutely what they would mm. have to do mm. um, but to understand and engage in what's been going on for both young people is really important. Mm. Depends on the level of behaviour so there's also really teachable moments that can come mm. out of these events too so you know for our younger children who are you know you show me yours I'll show you mine it's that's you know on mm. there's a continuum of harm mm. that we need to look to so there's normal behavior right through to um, problematic and even up to violent mm. and so understanding that there is that spectrum so a huge part for schools would be training and education for the actual staff mm. um, to recognize and respond accordingly so you don't want to shame two children who are engaging in normal behavior that's damaging mm. Mm. but of course if there's a if we go that's looking really problematic so mm. for example a 14 year old who's mm. engaging with um sexualized behavior towards mm. a six-year-old mm. is never in the realm of normal mm. so um you know we need to consider mm. what we would do in response to that so protecting the child in the first instance but don't lose sight of protecting the other child and i think that's probably the part for schools because mm. um, you've got angry parents as well, you've got children who've been harmed, mm. um, you've reputational risk, but at the end of the day, what we're uncovering more and more in the research and in our own experience here at Bravehearts is that very often that child who's engaged in harmful sexual behaviour, it's not just that they've had trauma in their backgrounds, rarely have we come across children who are doing this for sexually motivated reasons Mm -hmm. there are a range of needs that are being met and and a huge part is that they just simply don't understand the behavior isn't appropriate Mm. Um, so there's lots of research coming out lots of areas of development and we wouldn't expect schools to be across all of that but I think Mm. a really fundamental is ascertaining the level of risk 
and ascertaining um, what needs to happen straight away depending on the needs of the children um, and what that immediate response should look like will definitely be based on that continuum of risk and current mm. um, level mm. of support that the children need. I think it um it also speaks a lot to you mentioned their reputational um, risk management mm. or reputational damage, and it, but it's also there's an element there of managing the expectations of parents mm-hmm. who, if they're the parent of the child who was um, you know on the, experienced that harm. Yeah. It, rightfully so, they're going to be quite distressed, mm-hmm. but equally so on the flip side, the parent of the child who's instigated this behaviour would be mortified. Mm-hmm. Where Where has yeah. their child learnt this? Yeah. Why were they behaving in this way? Am I breeding a pedophile in waiting? Mm-hmm. All of these kind of things come to mind and it really highlights the need of that not only should staff be educated, the students be informed, but also about the parents Absolutely. and communities. Mm-hmm. So when schools make decisions mm-hmm. in response to, and decisions that are aligned with perhaps behavioural best practice as opposed to legal coverage, mm-hmm. parents are a bit more informed and equipped yeah. to sort of understand where that's coming from. I think we, we've certainly, as an organisation, worked with schools where all too soon the legal entity is brought in and it's less Mm -hmm. about the care and protection of the child Mm -hmm. and more about someone's going to get sued here and it's not going to be us. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's really interesting about Mm -hmm. finding that balance and making sure parents understand. And and the other thing I really liked about what you were saying is providing that care and support and it goes back to understanding who your stakeholders are as a school in your Mm -hmm. community is also finding who are those services out there and, you know, Bravehearts is a great one, but we're not everywhere. No. So who are those support services in your community and using your guidance officers Mm -hmm. to make those connections Mm -hmm. so that you can provide that immediate support? Because following a disclosure and a child's been brought to the headmaster Mm -hmm. or or whoever and has had a very serious talk and and then perhaps nothing happens for six Mm -hmm. to eight weeks whilst a reportable conduct investigation Mm -hmm. happens and they've heard that the teacher's not coming to school anymore and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So how that sort of making sure that the child's always at the centre of that always. is, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things we were talking about. Um, I think you mentioned it before and you just mentioned it now is that need for feedback. That mm-hmm. part of an effective complaints handling system is not just dealing with the complaint, it's telling people that you're dealing with the complaint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And in other episodes we've had conversations with the, the PNC's association where they were talking, yeah, that need for feedback. But I guess it's important to clarify it's not about saying, and the outcome was Mr Smith was punished or, yeah. you know, this student was... They don't necessarily, for confidentiality and privacy, need to know exactly, but there was an outcome and thank right. you for raising your complaint. Mm. Mm. I think the other part to closing that mm. off is mm. if there's an actionable item that will then create better practice into the future Mm. how that's then communicated without breaking the confidentiality Mm. of the privacy but I think that's the other part which has and as a result of this we have Mm. now adjusted this and that's a message as well to other to to the other children for example who oftentimes may be witness to events that gives them a level of security and safety to know that action was taken that actually Mm. will have a positive outcome for them Mm. Um, so I think it's important to have that um, element closed off and shared and everyone understand that mm. you know this is what we've learned as a result mm. and that ongoing best practice approach and that's mm. certainly one of the key action areas for the royal for mm. um the royal commission and the national principles mm. that that feedback and that review after an incident is part of the complaints handling process yes. 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think the best practice is a nice segue into one of the other questions I was thinking of for you <laughs> was around that we've had a conversation before around policies and and procedures and and often there's regulatory requirements for a school to have a policy that's quite specific. And one of those examples was having a very specific one person in the school mm-hmm. to report to, yeah. to raise a complaint mm-hmm. with. Can you talk to about whether or not that's a good idea and if not, why, or what's what's good about that, that sure. policy? Look, I think there's elements of that policy that are strong. Um, but in the first instance, as I've said, a child will disclose to the person they feel most safe and secure with or it may just come out in another situation of mm. elevated you know mm. behavioral episodes something you know, just may trigger that child to, mm. to, to disclose so ultimately we can't control and dictate to whom children will disclose so i think that element is possibly mm. a little bit lost within that position but what i do think that's strong because a lot of teachers and um, will say well this child's disclosed to me what do i do now and, you know, even with lots of training, it's still a huge step for them to then move forward, even though they'll have the best interest of the child. It's fairly daunting. Um, so for them to have a nominated person within the school who's then the person they would make sure I've reported this to them, not to leave that responsibility with that person, but for that person to have a watching brief to ensure that from that point of complaint right through to the, the matter being dealt with closed and any relevant feedback then included in the policies and procedures of the school, that they've got that watching brief to ensure that the actions Mm -hmm. are completed and that that child never falls through the gaps. And I think that's really key because if you're dependent on the one person who the child's disclosed to, um, Mm. you know, that that could present some problems. Mm. Um, So I think that that gives a level of robustness if it's as an oversight and an addition to, um, I don't think having just one person mm. where all complaints go to is a great idea for mm. them to manage all elements of it. But I do think to provide that governance and that support to the teacher and the other staff who are associated with it, I think can strengthen the process for the school and also ensure that those learnings do um, you know, get unpacked and included and, and acted upon mm. in a mm. timely manner. Could that person also be the point of contact for families of the parents mm. for example assuming that they're not the the, the subjects of the allegation absolutely that they would be the mm-hmm. continuous feedback and where is this at and what's mm. happening and yeah and and a person mm. who's probably you know got that extra bit of training that extra support mm. and knowledge mm. so they're probably more equipped to ask some of the more difficult questions including you know what happens to this now and if it's outside of the school you know what will the police do now what will child safety do now um, someone who's well informed because parents will be looking for that level of reassurance mm. around mm. the knowledge base of what the actions will look like in a time of chaos and often mm. distress. Yeah. Mm. So it's important to have that single person, but in having that single person, they actually need to have quite a well rounded set of skills and, mm. and a strong capability around child protection. So yes. almost, a, and a lot of organisations adapt that child protection officer or advocate ah. or specialist, mm. that yeah. subject matter expertise is. Um, who could maintain those external yes. relationships and that kind of thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, um, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, you've given us a lot of things to think about, and I think the schools and the, the people who are listening to this podcast will get a lot out of um, the sorts of things you were talking about. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add or any things you thought of? or? 
Well, it kind of is. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> if I could go back, I just, when we're talking about um, peer on peer, and particularly within the school setting, mm. I think it's really important as well to differentiate between contact behavior and non-contact ah. in this day and age. Mm. Um, so I think with, um, you know, policies and procedures may talk to the use of school equipment, you know, even mm. schools who've banned the use of your personal devices within the school setting. Mm. It's a really naive position to think that that's a strong and safe place to be because um, whilst we might have a policy and we might have some safeguards, the number of kids who are using school devices to one, access pornography, mm. but also to use the devices. Um, mm. So we have incidences of um, children using the iPads, their school iPads, for upskirting, for creating mm. pornography within the mm. school environment. So I think mm. we need to have... Um, a watching brief and and how do we actually manage those elements around um, online um, behaviours mm. within the school and obviously outside of the school. Yeah. But within that school environment, um, we're certainly coming across increasingly schools who believe that because they have strong policy um, around the use of school equipment and school devices and, and they have um, security you know, software mm. in place where they think they can pick things up. Mm. The kids are using the cameras to do all sorts of mm. things. Um, so I know that we've come across um, some recommendations where um, literally the schools are being advised to um, cover the cameras. So there's a set tape to go over the camera and then when the camera needs to be used in class then it comes off so a really visual cue because otherwise mm. how can a teacher in a classroom be monitoring the use of all these devices yeah right so some really practical mm. um simple moves to then allow teachers to have cues mm. um and we're certainly seeing that coming through from young ones so um we've had um kindy where kids are using the the um, cameras to to upskirt other children right through wow. to teenagers who um you know are the girls in the class but also the teachers mm. so um this area of it isn't just about the online world of child sexual exploitation it's also just the really practical you've got mm. cameras in your device in every mm. in yeah. every classroom and how do you monitor and safeguard yeah, one, one of the other principles is about that is about sort of um, physical and online yes. safety and environments. Um, and one of our other podcasts will have an expert talking about um, cyber safety mm -hmm. and um, all those sorts of things. But that is um, mm. really, I think that'll be raised, yeah. <laughs> that one. And certainly where schools' heads are at because yeah. you, know, you can't, you can't have a school without technology no. and these devices mm. um, and silly to try, yeah. um, but how do you do so safely? Mm. And it could be something as effective as a bright coloured piece of tape. Exactly. Mm. Simple mm. but effective. Mm. Mm. Very much yeah. so. Dr. Deirdre Thompson, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>